0: Father, in this moment, we walk into this place, and God, if we're honest, we're probably not expecting much. God, we, we come in this place during the holiday season, God, where we probably, most of us have struggled to spend time in the work because of different schedules, our routines all thrown off. So, God, we find ourselves feeling a bit apathetic. But God, we want to believe this morning that you are holy and good and beautiful and righteous and true regardless of the day. God, and regardless of how we feel. God, and how amazing that is that no matter how we feel, no matter how we feel towards you, God, that has not changed the way you feel towards your people. So God, in this time, would you begin to speak to our hearts in a fresh way? Would you begin to show us the way you deal with us when we run from you? God, that this morning we would be overwhelmed and astounded at the fact that you are constantly for your people even when we run away. God, that's the most amazing thing about you, that you have grace upon grace for us. God, let us believe it this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, as always, church is good to be with you if you're new or visiting. Glad that you're here. My name is Tyler David. I am the downtown campus pastor, one of our preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. Glad you guys are with us. You have a Bible. Go and open up to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We'll be there in a second, but I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas. Hope you had a good time with family and friends, and it's during this time of year, as we come to the end of 2013, we all begin to naturally look back. If you've been on Facebook at all, or Twitter, or on the internet, if you've heard of that before, um, people have been doing like the top 10 books or movies or albums of 2013, and it kind of is natural for all of us to begin to look back at 2013, and I, and I don't know how your year was. I don't know what it was like. I don't know what it was filled with. I don't know if it was great sorrows or great joys or um, just apathetic and kind of blah. I mean, I'm not sure how it was for you. And in the room this size and people from all over the place, we all had different years. We're all over the map. And even how we feel towards God and our relationship with God over the 2013, all of us have different stories of what happened. But I can tell you one thing for sure. that all of us that have one thing in common when it comes to 2013 that all of us experienced failure. Every single one of us in this room had the experience of failure in 2013. Some of us were, had greater failures than others, but we all had that experience. All of us had that gut-wrenching feeling in 2013 where you, you thought, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. That moment where you're filled with Shame and guilt and remorse, all of us had that experience in 2013, I guarantee it. See, because this is a human condition, a human experience across every culture and every time period on this planet, so much of human history is people dealing with and coping with their own sense of shame and guilt, that every person has some sort of standard in mind that is good and right and true, and they fail to meet that standard. Now, don't just think of religious laws. But even the standards that we self-impose, even the standards that we create for ourselves, we still fail at. I mean, think about a basic standard like lying. There's no one in the room who would say lying is a good thing. If you do think that, talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you why you're wrong. But none of us would say that. But yet, in 2013, I guarantee you we all told a lie. We all exaggerated just a little bit. You embellish that story just a little bit, your income just a little bit, your bench press just a little bit, embellish it just a little bit. Even other standards like you want to watch less TV or you want to eat right or you want to work out more and you find yourself cheating on those things. No matter the standard, even the ones you choose for yourself, you still find yourself failing at them. See, what you begin to see when you look at our lives and the, and the, Cornucopia that is humanity. You begin to see we are going to fail regardless. No matter who institutes a standard, no matter who puts it in the place, we have a difficult time, an impossible time, remaining consistent. And so the question is, how do you deal with it when you fail? How do you deal with it when, when you fail and you sin and you have those moments where you hurt a friend or a spouse? When you're harsh with your kids, when you keep spending money and keep getting in that financial hole you just can't stop, when you had that latest sexual immorality and you did it again, how do you deal with it? What are your coping mechanisms? But more important than that, how does God deal with you? Like when you fail, how does God interact with you? The way you answer that question is monumental. It's monumental the way you respond to that question. Because if we, as human beings, are going to fail, regardless of the standard, regardless of who put it there, then how you think God looks at you when you fail is going to determine the way you see Him. The way you answer the question, How does God treat me when I fail, is going to define the way you view God. I wonder what your answer would be. And what's your answer? What do you think He treats you like? What do you think His disposition is towards you when you fail? I think if we were honest, I think if we could just be honest that we have failed and we have sinned, I think most of us really see God as this as this person who's just waiting to destroy us. I remember in seventh grade, on the first day of school, on the first day of school, I got an assigned seat on the bus. First day. So my bus driver tells my dad, and my dad says, First day, Tyler, are you serious? First day? How'd you get in a signed seat? And I don't want I don't to go into all the bus politics, but someone had to take a fall, and I took the fall for everybody, okay? I don't want get into all of it, but my dad said, okay, you know what? I'm going to let this one slide. I'm going to let it slide. But you mess up again, it's over for you. My dad's a cop, so he means it. And so I said, okay, Dad, I'm a good kid. I'm not going to fail again. I got this. Thank you for your grace. Second day of school. Second day of school, I'm in my science class, and I'm talking with my buddies. and Our teacher tells us to be quiet again and again. We keep talking. And finally, I guess when he had, was fed up, I was talking. He says, Tyler, come to the front of the room. So I walk up there, and he says, hey, during my off period, I need you to come talk to me. You're in trouble. So I was nervous, but I'm thinking, you know what? By the time I get there, he'll have cooled down. We'll, we'll hug it out. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Walking to his office during his off period, and he's sitting there in his chair. I can still vividly remember it. Sitting there in his chair, and there's a phone he says, hey, we're going to call your dad. And he said that, I did what any self-respecting seventh grader would do, I began to weep. Like, please, please don't do it. I'll do anything. I'll be your son. What do you need? I'll do anything. I'm, I mean, I am like snot crying. Like, it's gross. So he puts it on speakerphone. He calls my dad. Ring, ring. Goes the answering machine. I'm thinking, ha, there's a chance. In my seventh grade brain, I thought, if I can just get home before my dad does, I'll delete it, and he'll never know. Not thinking he could just call him again. That's, it's impossible in my mind. I just think if I delete it, it's over. So I'm hoping that if I pull to my house on my bus, in my assigned seat, by the way, and when we pull up, there, if his truck's not there, I'm in the clear. I can delete it. So we're pulling up. We're going past the houses. We pull up to my house. We get to the edge of the driveway. There's his truck. I'm thinking, well, I'm dead. It's over for me. And so I get off the bus, I walk into the house, kind of looking around, what's, what's going to happen, and I see my mom, my lovely, sweet mother. And I'm, I'm like, I want to, I I'm hoping I can help her, like, have mercy for me, and I go to my mom, and before I can say anything, with a stern look on her face, she goes, your dad's outside, he wants to talk to you. Okay? I walk outside in the backyard, and my dad's doing yard work, and he's digging a hole. And I'm like, is that my grave? Were you for real? Is this over for me? fella style, it's over. And the punishment ensues. Obviously, I didn't die. I'm still here. But I tell you that story because I think that's how we view God when we fail. I think if you're honest, when you think God's just waiting in the backyard, and as soon as you show up, he says, what did I tell you? You think that as soon as you fail, we all find ourselves running from him because we're scared of what he's going to say. That when we fail, that is the worst time to go to God. That's how we feel. You go to God when you feel strong and you're confident and you're pure. That's when you go to God. But when you fail, that's when you got to get a little bit better and do other things before you come back to him because he's just waiting in the backyard digging a hole for you. That's how we feel often. It's how we act often. But I want you to see today in Luke 22 that Jesus is going to show us that God deals with our failures differently than we might think. That Because if we're going to fail even our own standards of not eating healthy, how much more are you and I going to fail when it comes to this eternal, perfect, creator God who's happy and holy and totally different from us and yet we bear his image? We're going to fail him all the time and in much more heinous and grievous ways. If we're going to fail him... The way he treats us when we fail is monumental in our understanding of who he is and what he's like. What you're going to see today in the text, he is more gracious than you can imagine. So we're going to be in Luke 22, verse 31 to 34. And before I read, I want to just kind of set the scene for you. Uh, They're eating the Passover meal together. Jesus and his disciples eating the Passover meal together. We actually preached on this a couple weeks ago. But the Passover meal, very simply put, is the most sacred meal for the Jewish people. It was a meal that celebrated how God had rescued them from their slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. So every year they ate this meal together. And this is Jesus' last meal with his disciples, his very last one before his betrayal. And as they're eating, Jesus is teaching them stuff, as he always does. He's teaching them about life and the kingdom. And as he's teaching, he singles out Peter. As he's teaching, he singles out Peter and begins to speak to Peter in front of the rest of the eleven, and he, It's important that you know something about Peter. I mean, we're familiar with him. If you're in church, you have an idea of who Peter is. But it's important to know that he is the most vocal and bold person among the disciples. He's kind of the leader of the rest of the 12. He kind of speaks first. And with that kind of personality type, he has some amazing moments and some terrible moments. And they're captured perfectly in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, we have a story of Peter where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you, who do you say that I am? they kind of sit and look at each other, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. He's the first person to make a public profession of faith in Jesus. He's vocal. He's bold. But then just six verses later, this same bold disciple, when Jesus begins to tell them, hey, guys, by the way, the reason I came is to die. The reason I came is to be humiliated and suffer for sin. Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Why would you ever think that? That's never going to happen to you, to which Jesus calls him Satan. Get away from me. And that's, that's Peter. That's, that's what he's like. He's this bold, vocal, the leader of the disciples, the first among equals. And Jesus, as he's teaching, stops and says, I have something to say to you, Peter. Look at verse 31. Look at verse 31. It says, Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus tells Peter, there is some serious satanic spiritual attack coming your way. That Satan himself has asked God for permission to sift you like wheat, to destroy you and the disciples. Interesting to note, Satan asked God for permission He went to God and said, I want to destroy them. May I do it? And in some form or fashion, God said yes to an extent. God granted permission for him to do this to the disciples, and Jesus says, you're going to fail, Peter. You're going to fail. I know you are. I've known for some time. And this is not a possibility. Jesus doesn't say, hey, there's there's an attack coming, and you may fall going to be difficult and you may fail we'll see no he says no you're going to fail you see it clearly in verse 32 and he says and when you have turned again when you have turned again when you come to your senses that you've sinned against me and you've rebelled against me you've rejected me when you come to your senses turn again to your brothers I'm going to pray for you he tells him this in front of the rest of the 12 and this has got to be some difficult news to hear Imagine if Jesus looked at you and said, in front of everyone here, hey, you're going to deny me. Peter, you're going to fail in front of everyone else. Well, Peter responds the way we probably would. He begins to defend himself. Look at verse 33. Verse 33, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. So Jesus tells him, hey, you're going to fail under Satan's attack. And Peter says, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Jesus, you've lost your mind a little bit. I'm more faithful. I'm more committed. I'm more loyal than you know. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to fail. I'm going to follow you even to death. Jesus, you've got the wrong guy. He begins to list off his credentials. Jesus, I'm faithful. We would do the same thing. You and I do the same thing. As soon as we're challenged, especially if you follow Jesus and how you walk with Jesus, we begin to defend ourselves. Well, I do this thing and this thing and this thing. I'm part of this church, or I believe in this theology, or I've done this, I've preached this sermon, or whatever. We begin to defend ourselves and say, no, you don't understand. I would never do such a thing. So Peter tells Jesus, Jesus, you've got the wrong guy. You're mistaken. Look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Peter says, no, you don't understand. You've got the wrong guy. Jesus says, no, I've got the right guy. And you in particular, Peter, you're going to deny that you ever knew me. And it's not going to be in some distant future where no one remembers this conversation. It's going to be in 12 hours. It's going to be in 12 hours you're going to do this. All this bravado, all this faith you claim to have, it's going to be for nothing. Because within 12 hours, you're going to deny me three times. Three separate occasions, Peter's going to say, I never knew that man. See, he's not going to talk bad about Jesus. He's going to act like he never knew him. Because it's, it's one thing to talk bad about somebody. We, we've all done that. All of us have talked bad about somebody behind their back, even someone that we loved. We've critiqued them behind their back. We've talked, we've talked bad about them. And yet, how many of us have ever denied we've known somebody? That's a whole nother rejection. That's a whole nother sin against somebody to say, no, I never even knew them. I don't even know their name. Who are they? And so Jesus tells them this, and he ends the conversation. No, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. On to the next thing. It's like, a little awkward. Like Everyone's like, eesh, dang, Peter. But he ends the conversation. He moves on, and his betrayal Ensues. And just like every other word that Jesus speaks, what he speaks comes to fruition. He told it was going to happen, and just a short couple of hours later, Peter denies him three times. See, as Jesus is being tried by the high priest in his home, their judge, Peter's following behind him. The rest of the disciples have left and fled, but Peter's staying faithful. He's with him, he's following Jesus. And then he comes to the courtyard with other onlookers, people wondering what's going to happen to this Jesus guy, the so-called Messiah. And then people see Peter and they begin to realize, I think you know him. They recognize his accent. They see his face. Like, no, you were with Jesus. Y'all are friends. You're a follower of his. And two times Peter says, no, that's not me. You got the wrong guy. I don't know this Jesus. We pick it up the third denial. Look at verse 60. Verse 60. But Peter said, so a man just asked him if he knew Jesus, if he was part of his following. He says, but Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. As he is speaking the words of denial, saying, man, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know him. As he's speaking the words of denial, a rooster crows in the background. What's interesting, the rooster crowing didn't set off Peter to realize what he had done. You ever been in that moment where you're defending yourself, you're angry, you're frustrated, you can't think clearly? I'm sure he's angry and frustrated and defending himself, and the rooster crows, he probably doesn't even hear it. But then somehow in the midst of the chaos of that moment, Jesus being tried by the council and all the people looking and watching, somehow him and Jesus lock eyes. I don't know how it happened, but somehow they locked eyes for a moment. All of a sudden, Peter's fear and anger dissipated and he realized all that he said came true. He realized what he had done and he's filled with shame and guilt and he runs away weeping bitterly bitterly I think we've all been there you've you've had those moments where you've done something you've sinned in a certain way and you're filled with this kind of shame that moment where you realize I can't believe I did that I hate myself for doing that we've all had this moment like Peter and some of you respond to your shame the same way Peter does Some of you respond the same way Peter does and maybe you're prone to depression. Maybe you cry like this and you're prone to that and you can relate to this. You you respond the way Peter does when you see the shame and the guilt. You weep and you cry and you don't know what to do and you're depressed. But others of us respond differently. See, just because you don't cry, just because you don't have these uh, demonstrative uh, emotions does not mean you don't have shame. It just means you deal with it differently. I had a buddy in college that the way he would deal with his shame is he would work out as hard as he possibly could till he almost passed out. I remember one time walking into his room and he was on the floor breathing really heavily and I'm like, "Dude, what's wrong?" And he just was vulnerable and told me, "Man, I did this thing and I feel shame for it, so I just ran as hard as I could for as long as I could till so I almost collapsed." He's coping with his failure. I get it. I get that he's he's finding some way. He can't deal with the failure. He can't deal with the guilt, so he has to deal with it somehow. And I get it, I'm beginning to find that I do similar things. I'm beginning to notice this pattern in my life when I feel incredibly distant from God. When I have those weeks, When I don't pray a lot, I have those weeks where I'm not reading the Bible. I have those weeks where I don't really love people I'm doing because I'm supposed to. I don't really care about God or his gospel. Nothing in me is impressed, and it may not lead to overt immorality. People may look at me and say, oh, he looks fine. I'm sure he loves Jesus. He's a pastor. He's a preacher. He must love Jesus, but I know in my heart of hearts I could give a rip. I have those moments, and then I realize it. I come to my senses. God shows me my sin, and I'm overwhelmed with shame. And remorse. Look at my heart. I'm like, what am I doing? I know he's better yet. I continue to run away. But you know how I found myself dealing with it? Cleaning. Cleaning. I'm like, okay, I feel ashamed. I'm going to go dominate the kitchen. So I find myself doing. I find myself, because I, I, I don't know how to deal with it. I don't want to talk to God. He's just angry with me. So I'm like, I'll just go Clean. My wife will say, wow, great job. I'm like, great. As I'm weeping, you know, no big deal. I love cleaning. But it's just my coping. I've realized, I'm like, why am I doing this? I don't want to deal with my failure. I don't know how so often. And I think most of you in the room are no different. I I, I think if you were honest, you and I are probably too scared to admit how much of our lives and what we do and our busyness is to distract us from the guilt we feel. I mean, that's why we constantly need input, constantly need entertainment or noise or something going into our minds. Why? Because the silence can be deafening, can it? You say quiet long enough and the insecurities are so loud. The, the meaninglessness that you feel, so deafening. How much of our lives, our busyness is we don't wanna deal with or know how to deal with the shame and guilt and insecurities that we have. See, if you don't have Jesus, if you don't have Jesus, that's all you have. I want you to hear me on that. If you don't have Jesus, that's all you have. I mean, all you can do is numb the pain and numb the shame and reshuffle the debt. that's all you can do. You can't deal with it. You have to distract yourself and be busier. When you fail God or you fail people or you fail to be the person you want to be, the spouse you want to be, the reputation you want, the salary you want, the certain experience you want, when you don't have that and you fail, all you can do is try to work harder. All you can do is say, okay, not next time, next time's different. When you fail again, what do you do? You work harder, you serve more, you do more things, you heap up pressure and weight on your shoulders, hoping, "Oh, no, this time I'll be different, only to find you're not, if you don't have Jesus, all you can do is distract yourself. All you can do is say, out of sight, out of mind. But you can't deal with it. And if you do deal with it, you have to be overwhelmed with shame. I think so much of our business is we don't know how to sit and quiet because when we're quiet, all those things come flooding into our minds. We have no solution. No pill, no therapy session can give you the solution that you're looking for, Those things only work if they're pointers to something greater, if they're pointers to this Jesus. See, Jesus actually has a solution for you 2014. He actually has a solution where you can look at your guilt and your shame and be honest about it, but get rid of it at the same time. He has a solution. And what you're going to see through this text, we read it again, he has a compassion that you and I know nothing about. He has a love that you and I know nothing about, and I hope that this morning we begin to marvel at how great Jesus is. Look at verse 31 and 32 again. We look how Jesus responds. Verse 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knows Peter's going to reject him. He knows, he's known for some time. The man he's given his life to, it's gonna roll, it's gonna run. The man he's poured three years into, it's gonna act like he never knew him. And how does Jesus respond? How does he respond to such betrayal and cowardice? Jesus says he prays for him. He prays for him. He says to Peter, I know you're going to fail. Satan's going to come, going to take you out. You're going to fail, but guess what? I've been praying for you since I found out. Since this went into motion, I've been praying for you. See, Peter's failure, you need to hear this, is not an opportunity for Jesus to punish him. His failure is an opportunity to show him how great his love is. See, his failure is not an opportunity for God to put his thumb on Peter and destroy him and say, I told you. No, his failure is an opportunity for Jesus to say, you don't understand how great my love is for you. You don't get it. You don't get it. See, he's altogether different. He deals with the failures of his people, no matter how perverse or cowardly, by praying for us, by thinking of us, by forgiving us. But how could he do this? I mean, how, how can he just dismiss such treachery! How can he be faithful to such faithlessness? How could he ever do that? Is it because there's something special about Peter? Is it because he's this special man that, because there's something, you know, in his heart that he just loves and is amazing, that if you just, you know, remove all the failures, there's something really great there? No. Jesus isn't faithful to him because of some, some fuzzy feeling he has towards Peter. He's not faithful to him because the, the rejection's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. No, Jesus is faithful and prays for Peter because of what he told him earlier in the meal. See, earlier in the meal, before Jesus told them about this attack that was coming, he was teaching them about the Passover. This meal they'd celebrated for thousands of years. He was teaching them. He was saying, hey, this meal that we celebrate about us being rescued from slavery from Egypt, he began to tell them, this meal is a foreshadowing of what I'm about to do. This meal is a foreshadowing of I'm going to rescue you from your slavery, our slavery, which is we are enslaved to the guilt of our sin. We can't get away from it. No matter what we do, no matter good deeds that we do, we can't get away from the guilt we have towards God. We're enslaved to it. And Jesus says, I came to rescue you. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. Jesus says, And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus tells them his body is going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked and tortured and degraded. And all the wrath of God for their guilt we put onto him that he was a sinless one, that he was the one to be the spotless lamb, the Passover lamb that God would destroy. See, on the cross, he, Jesus got what I deserved, what I deserved, what you deserved, what Peter deserved. And it was that cross that enabled Jesus to look at Peter, to look at you today, this morning, to look at me and say the following. Look at verse 32. The cross enables Jesus to say, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says to any and all who trust in him, no matter the sin, no matter where you are, he says, when you fail, I pray for you. I'm not waiting in the backyard to destroy you. I want to pray for you and give grace to you. I've taken care of your sin. All of it. 2014 is not making up for past sins. Jesus made up for past sins and every sin. At every accusation that Satan hurls in your mind, when he brings up that sin you've committed, and he's right, you have committed that sin, you have rebelled against God, you have felt shame and guilt, Jesus says, yes, it is true, that is real, but guess what, I took it on the cross. It's gone from you. I'm praying for you that when your faith comes back and you believe in me again that you'll strengthen others. That's what Jesus says to Peter and this is what God keeps teaching me. I feel like every week I'm learning this over and over again. I'm learning that I have this propensity when I feel distant from God, I tend to run away. I tend to say, okay, let me read my Bible first. Let me get, quit feeling guilty first. Let, let me um, somehow get my heart ready first and then I'll come back And Jesus keeps reminding me, you don't have to get ready first. I was praying for you before you failed, before you ran away. I was already praying for you, I was already making intercession for you, saying you don't have to earn this. And that's the grace he offers to us. See, there are areas in your life, in your life as individuals, I'm sure, where you keep failing God. Areas where you continue to fail. And and if you've made any New Year uh, resolutions, all those resolutions are aimed at fixing old problems, aren't they? Even if they're like diet and exercise, but if they're spiritual, I guarantee you're aiming, okay, this year I'm going to read the Bible for real. This year I'm going to love people better. You have these issues, you're trying to fix yourself, and guess what? I I hope God gives you victory you've never seen before. I, I hope that the Spirit of God gives you power to overcome sin in ways you never thought, but there's no way to escape failing in this life. Do not have in your mind, this year will be the year where I don't sin anymore. Not possible. Not possible. You're going to fail. You're going to be deceived by lies and believe them and run away. Your rebellion is going to be really overt sometimes and really subtle uh, uh, other times. But as long as you're in this life, whether you die, the only way you're going to not sin is whether you die or Jesus comes back. That's it. You're going to to fail. I'm going to fail. But I want 2014 for you and for me to be a year marked with repentance. A year marked by us repenting more often of our sin and confessing it more often to God and other people because we know he's not sitting there in heaven angry with me. He's been praying for me. He's been thinking about me. He's been working everything, even my sin that I committed for my good. It doesn't make sin okay. It doesn't mean we make peace with it. We try to kill it. But we look to this Savior and say, his grace makes repenting far easier. That this year we would confess sin more often because when you come to that place where you thought, I've exhausted his grace. You've ever been there where you thought, okay, surely this time he's going to kill me. I've done it for the thousandth time. This has to be the last time of grace. I want you to begin to realize, and I want to realize I'm just scratching the surface. There's a reason Paul prays in Ephesians 3 for us to know the love of God that surpasses all knowledge. How do you know love that surpasses knowledge? It takes forever forever. Takes forever. And you and I are going to spend forever, if you're in Christ, and whoever would trust in him, spend forever marveling at the love he already has for us through the cross. See, what happens when you begin to see God for who he is, when you begin to repent to this God who's praying for you, you see that he's more gracious and kind than you could ever imagine, All of a sudden, it makes running away seem more and more foolish. You may still do it. You will still do it. But the more you're around him as he truly is, as the gracious, kind, loving Savior, you'll want to stay around him more. So let's have 2014 be a year where we confess sin more often. Repent of it more often because the one we're confessing to has been praying for us the whole time. Let's pray. God, when I think, when we think about your grace and your mercy and your love for us, God, it can seem like a fairy tale. It can seem like it can't be true. It can seem unimpressive if our hearts are that hard. But God, would you give us eyes to see that you want us to behold you through mercy. You want want us to see you as merciful and more gracious and more kind than we could ever imagine. That when you thought of how you wanted to save us, how you wanted us to know you, you thought the pinnacle of us knowing you would be through your love. A love that continues on even when we fail. A love that was not given to us because we've been good, but given to us because Jesus was better than we could ever imagine. God, make us people who want him more than anything. Make us people who realize all this stuff cannot satisfy. Make us people in 2014 who see Jesus and where we are in awe of him. That we're impressed by him. We can't get past him or over him because we see his grace, we see his love, we see his mercy towards us and we say, wow, there is no one like our God. There is no one like this king. The world has to know. They have to know. God, make us that kind of people so you can be seen and worshiped as you deserve. God, I ask these things in the name of our risen king. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing together.